Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, and we'll be talking about his newest book, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Mind-Altering Substances. Over the past decade, many famous entrepreneurs and celebrities have begun to open up about their life-changing experiences with psychedelics that led to their personal successes. But less well-known are the wisdom-bringing psychedelic experiences of many top psychologists, psychiatrists, researchers, and others who have taken what they have learned from their ethnogenic experiences and applied it in their profession, leading to therapeutic advancements, scientific discoveries, and healing for thousands. In this profound book, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller shares stories of psychedelic transformation, insight, and wisdom from his conversations with 19 scientists, doctors, therapists, and teachers, each of whom have been self-experimenting with psychedelic medicines for decades. Dr. Lewis Miller has been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He is host of the syndicated talk show, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. He's the founder of the nationally acclaimed Cogander's Alcohol and Drug Program, and he has been a faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University and an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health. For more information, you can visit his website, which is www.mindbodyhealthpolitics.com politics.org. So that, I'd like to welcome Richard to the show. Good day, Richard. Thank you, Robert. Lovely introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Those, those stories were very interesting stories. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about them and, uh, and, and your experiences. So um, you wrote a best-selling book, um, Psychedelic Medicine. Um, so tell us, uh, Tell us, you know, um, uh, you know, about that particular book, and then how this new book, Psychedelic Wisdom, differs from that one. Yes. Well, in 1935, the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, uh, uh, appointed his nephew, uh, and uh, Harry Anslinger was a racist, a very zealous racist. And so what he uh, went about doing was using the Federal Bureau of Narcotics as a way to attack people of color. He, he attacked uh, black people by claiming that they were using uh, cocaine to seduce white women and have sex with them. He attacked people, yellow people, uh, claiming that they were opium addicts and they were running wild. And he attacked Hispanics saying that they were using marijuana and, and going crazy in the streets. And, uh, and he went on a, a, a wild campaign 
of incarcerating people in, of color, and, uh, and uh, 85 years later, we're still dealing with the fallout. Uh, along the way, what happened was, as a result of Anne Slinger's racism, uh, what happened was psychedelic medicines, which had come into vogue with the discovery of, uh, of LSD uh, in 1953, but also um, uh, MDMA was discovered actually at the turn of the century, uh, they became uh, scheduled and made illegal. And this Anslinger went on such a campaign that he went to the United Nations and he influenced countries around the world to make um, these various substances illegal. As a result, university uh, scientists at the highest levels around the United States were unable to continue to do research on these very powerful, potentially healing substances. And this um, obstacle has been in the way now, Robert, for over 50 years. It has been the kind of thing that you hear about going on in totalitarian countries such as China and Russia where they suppress science. It's, it's just un almost unimaginable that science has been suppressed in the United States for over a half a century. And so what I knew as a clinical psychologist was that many scientists around the United States were risking their careers and their very lives by doing self-experimentation, and some of them were actually doing hard research by banging on the doors of the federal government for many, 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 many years until they finally got permission to do a little research. So since I knew these scientists around the country who were able to get permission from the government to do research, I interviewed uh, many of them, the foremost scientists in the country, on their research concerning LSD, MDMA, known on the street as ecstasy, but they're not the same, um, psilocybin, referred to as the magic mushroom, and ayahuasca. And I interviewed these scientists and put the interviews together and created the book for the public called Psychedelic Medicine. So the public can read this book and see what these scientists actually say, unedited, no baloney, straightforward information about what they said about the little research that they were allowed to do by the government. Wow. Now, and now with the, the psychedelic wisdom, you expanded it beyond just scientists, and you also included uh, therapists, um, uh, artists, and, um, and others. So can you tell us, you know, you, you mentioned with those scientists that, you know, they had to kind of kind of work their way into doing uh, research. Um, with with Many of these drugs are, are still, you know, illegal on the federal level. So did you, did you have any difficulty in um, convincing the interviewees for this particular book, um, opening up about their, you know, their experiences? Number one, because they're, you know, again, they're still illegal, but also to maybe the, the potential impact on their, their career or their reputation because of those? 
That's a great question, Robert. And my thinking was, I knew that scientists and psychologists and psychiatrists around the country were self-experimenting with these medicines. I also knew that these same people had access to the research that I brought to the public in psychedelic medicine. So, for example, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University uh, kept banging on the door of the federal government for many, many years until he was finally allowed to do double-blind real research on psilocybin and its effects on depression. And the results were remarkable. And I had him on my program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, right after he did that research many years ago. And the word got out. And the word about this research got out around the world because what he did was he found people who were depressed by uh, measuring on them on various scales. They administered psilocybin, and then they followed them. And one year later, there were still remarkable results in decreasing their depression. Now, when you compare that to what the pharmaceutical companies are selling, which are these antidepressants, which you have to take 365 days a year and pay them for it to taking something once and getting results a year later, well, that's quite astonishing. So I knew that scientists and, and psychotherapists around the country were aware of some of this research, and I knew that they were doing this research on themselves going back 40 and 50 years. So what I decided to do, and this is the answer to your question, Robert, was find people who were old enough that they would be willing to out themselves on what they had been doing, the idea being that they'd be pretty too much too old to prosecute or too old to worry about their licenses being taken away. And so the people that I, the scientists and therapists and artists that I interviewed in Psychedelic Wisdom are all over 65 years of age, Many of them are in their 70s and 80s, and one is actually over 90. I spoke to him the other day. So they had less to lose, and that is why they were willing to take the risk. In one case, Frederica Merkel Fischer in Switzerland, a very prominent scientist and, and psychiatrist, she told the story of how she was dragged out of bed in the middle of the night along with her prominent uh, lawyer husband, because she had been teaching other doctors how to use psychedelics. And that was a very touching story. But these people definitely are risking their, some, somewhat of their careers. I mean, they're elders, so they're not risking their whole career. But they did it. And they did it beautifully. And it's in the book for the public to read, Psychedelic Wisdom. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting in, in the fact that you, you refer to them as elders, and, you know, they, as I think you indicated in the book, you know, amongst them, there are more than 1,500 years of experience that they're drawing from, so, you know, there is a, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit there. Um, now, recently, you know, there have been um, indications that, you know, some states are, um, decriminalizing like uh, psilocybin um, in, in Colorado um, and in Oregon. Um, 
do you feel that our current in our current environment that we may um, eventually see the decriminalization and the um, the therapeutic use of, of these medicines? Well, one is hopeful, Robert, but one can never predict what politicians are going to do. And one can never predict what the motivation of the people who are attempting to suppress this uh, renaissance in psychedelic medicine, what they're going to do. For example, prosecutors around the country are seeming to organize in order to stop the decriminalization and the legalization of these medicines, either they're playing by the old tune of one thing le leads to another, and if you take these medicines, you're going to be who knows what. Next, you'll be taking heroin and cocaine and whatever else. You know, they, they call mm -hmm. it the gateway. You start with something and you go. And I don't know what their motivation is. Usually, you have to follow the money. And, and to understand where the motivation to suppress science is. Uh, typically, it's because somebody is going to make more money by suppressing science than they would make by allowing the science to take place. Uh, in, in my opinion, what we have going on is a battle for the soul of the country and per perhaps a battle for the soul of the planet. And the battle, from my perspective, is between those who I call social Darwinists and those that I call humanists. The social Darwinists have taken Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest, and they've applied it to economics and power. So they believe that a small group of people should be the most wealthy people, and they should have all the money because they are the fittest, and therefore they deserve it. And those that are in power should be in power because they deserve to be in power because they are the fittest. And they see that when other people go starving or without health or without education or without food, they're simply dying by the wayside in the, in the Darwinian survival of the fittest. The humanists, on the other hand, take the perspective that we're all in this together on this planet, that we are all human beings, and therefore we all are entitled to the basics, which is food, shelter, health care, and education. And the humanists believe that there's enough to go around, that we can provide everybody on the planet with food, shelter, health care, and education, with dignity, and with respect for all. And these two groups, in my opinion, the social Darwinists and the humanists, are battling it out. And right now, we're going through a period of time where it looks like the social Darwinists have been winning because there's an economic stratification going on in the United States that is severe. Sixty percent of the country right now are on the edge of financial ruin, not being able to feed their families. Now, how does all that relate to psychedelics? The way it relates is that psychedelic medicines are nothing more or less than a tool 
just like a hammer is a tool, a screwdriver, and a pliers, these are tools that we use. And psychedelic medicines are tools. And the tool that they offer us is the potential to see the world in a different way. Because when you read psychedelic wisdom and read these 1,500 years of experiences of these exceptional people, you will see how often what they discovered with the use of psychedelic medicine is their affinity to other human beings. They're caring about other human beings. Their feeling of connection, their realization that we are all connected. We are all of the same group. We're all living beings. And furthermore, you'll read that their empathy as a result of using these medicines has increased dramatically, not only to other human beings, but to other animals and to the planet itself. Many people, through the use of this tool called psychedelic medicines, have come to the realization that we are all part of the planet. We don't just live on the planet. We are part of it. And it's one living, breathing organism. And so that when we do things to destroy the planet, we are actually doing things to ourselves. On the micro level, it would be almost like cutting off one of your toes or one of your feet when you cut mm -hmm. off things off the planet or extract them. These are some of the things that these elders are bringing to us in the book Psychedelic Wisdom. And I'm hopeful that it will make an impact enough so that it'll give the humanists a chance to have more say. And those that are still playing the game of king of the hill and those who, you know, the, gold, the old golden rule, those who have the gold rule, that we will see some things in that. Yeah. yeah. You know, the um, idea of money, um, when I was reading the book, I, I went in and to, to look at, you know, some of the current um, activity and, and noticed, you know, that there was um, a, an increase in the idea of patenting some of these, you know, plant-based therapeutics. Um, and give, they give the excuse <laughs> that the, the reason that they need the patent is to, to get the money for, for um, study you know, in order to be able to determine to determine effectiveness, when which you know thousands of years of use, you know, determined have, have you know through um, through stories been able anecdotally been able to, to provide evidence. But but it it seems that there is this um, desire to monetize um, the the process prior to any kind of opening up availability. And um, and it seems, again, like you'd say, is to keep those, you know, social Darwinists um, in power and, and, in, and in money um, rather than the, you know, the end result of being beneficial for, for those who use it. So it, it seems like there is a, you know, th that particular struggle um, is, is being fought right now, um, and, and you know, in the 
the world of money and the world of corporations. And, and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping when, when I see that, it, it, it's very um, disheartening because, you know, right now people have such a, um, a slighted view of pharma, you know, of big pharma and, and their actions in trying to, um, you know, better the, the health of humanity, you know, versus, you know, the almighty dollar. Well, big pharma is out of control in that, on the one hand, they're doing all of us a great deal of good because, mm -hmm. of course, we want our ampicillin and, of course, we want our Z-Packs and, of course, we want so many of the wonderful medicines that science have brought to the pharmaceutical companies who have then manufactured them and widely distributed them, and we want to be grateful and thankful. But at the same time, they have gotten out of control in order to pay off investors and getting medicines through that are often dangerous, but also using their power to suppress science in other areas, which is most unfortunate. The, the basic problem, Robert, that we have is that whether you're a social Darwinist or a humanist, you're still playing on the same ballpark or ball field which is an economic foundation based on capitalism. And the problem mm -hmm. with capitalism, capitalism is a winner-take-all economic system. Capitalism is like the game of Monopoly. And anyone who has ever played Monopoly knows that if you play Monopoly with a group of friends for an evening or a day or a weekend, eventually one or two people have all the money and all the houses and all the property, and everybody else has nothing. Because that is just inherent in capitalism, that the more some people make, the more they're going to make, because money makes money. And those who are in the lower positions can get stuck in the lower positions for generations, if not longer. And everybody points to these examples of how somebody started out in a garage and ended up a multimillionaire. Well, sure, that happens, but it's extremely rare. It's extremely rare. What typically happens is you start down low, you end up live your life low, and you end up low because that's built into monopoly in the capitalist system. And until someone comes up with a better system, for, for egalitarian lifestyle, for making it possible for the average person to have food, shelter, health education, and, and, and a, a job, hopefully, as well as health care, the basics, until somebody comes up with an economic system that makes it possible to spread the wealth without the criticism, without these the, the social Darwinists, as soon as you try to spread the wealth, they start screaming, socialism, socialism, it's one step to communism, and they have all these, all these cliches that they scream. But you know something, Robert? Plenty of those social Darwinists who scream bloody murder about the possibility of, of, of socialism, they're very happy when they reach 65 and they get their <laughs> Medicare benefits. And they're very happy when they reach 65 and they get their Social Security benefits. And you know what? Social Security and Medicare are socialism.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I'm always amazed at uh, <laughs> the hypocrisy, you know, and it's, you know, up, and, up until the point that it affects, you know, some individually, you know, they'll, they'll hold these. And, and even sometimes, you know, uh, they're still reaping the benefits of, the, of that particular system, but yet still continue to rail against it. Um, to me, it's just, um, it's just amazing. Um, now, with the the psychedelics, first of all, is um, are can can and should anyone be allowed to use psychedelics? Well, <laughs> the answer to that question, the answer to that question has to be, of course not, because just like we don't let people under a certain age drink alcohol. We don't let people under a certain age serve in the military. We don't let people under a certain age smoke buy, uh, buy cigarettes. And so in terms of the general public to begin with, of course there have to be limitations, but we have to go much further than that. We have to get the public to understand that although these very same substances that we call psychedelics are medicines, we understand and appreciate that they can also be used recreationally. And that leads to confusion for the public because, you know, you don't use penicillin recreationally. You don't use, you don't use Tylenol recreationally. But here we have a unique substance which can be used both medicinally and recreationally. So we have to do an educational process. And instead of treating the general public like children, the way the politicians do and the government does in, in order to control and say, we'll, we'll take away this and we'll give them that and we'll take away this because we know what's good for them. Instead, what we have to do is we have to have respect for our fellow man and woman. And we have to explain to them through Internet, through television, through print media, through programs like yours, we need to teach them and explain to them both the benefits and the dangers of these various medicines. Nobody goes into a store and orders rat poison and has it for lunch. Why not? Because the public's been educated to know that if you eat rat poison, you're going to die. And we can do the very same thing with all kinds of substances instead of treating the, 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 the public like a bunch of children, which is, which is reprehensible, which is insulting, which, which, which the government and the, and the politicians on both sides of the aisle have been doing for much too long. It's time yeah. we treated ourselves. We tried. It's time we treated ourselves as the adults that we are, and that we get education. It could go. This education on on medicines, including psychedelic, can take place in high school. I'm not suggesting people start using the medicines in high school, but they can begin their education in high school, just like they can take driver's ed in high school and then become a driver at age 16 or 18, depending on what state they live in. Now, when you, the difference, the major difference between using these tools of psychedelics as recreation 
and using them as medicines is what we refer to as the protocol. The protocol means when you use them as a medicine, you get together with a person who is professionally trained. You have a plan of what you're going to do. You implement the plan along with the professional guide, and then you follow up. So it's a three-step process, which includes a trained guide. When you do something recreationally, you wake up on Saturday morning, you say, I think I'll take one of these, and maybe I'll take one of those. And maybe you put your life at risk. Maybe you put your emotional state at risk, but you're basically playing. And the public can learn easily the difference between playing and taking medicine, between a protocol with a three-step process or more, and just been saying, what was that I just took? That's an old <laughs> saying from the 60s rather than, what is that? It's, what was that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are a few of us that remember <laughs> those words coming through our heads. Of course. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pastor uh, Richard, we are actually halfway through the show already. So I want to take just a, a quick 90-second break. And then when we come back, um, I want to talk about, um, quote, the bad trip, you know, and the idea of setting and how setting is really important um, when it comes to one's experience with psychedelics, okay? Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, and we are talking about his newest book, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Mind-Altering Substances. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website at www.mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Um, again, and his book is available at all bookstores, <laughs> so do, do check it out. 
Okay, with that, we're back, Richard. Hi. Thank you, Robert. Okay, great. So um, the idea of, you know, having a, a, a clear setting, having a particular setting staged when one experiences psyched, um, psychedelics um, can can contribute to what's called more medical a bad trip. So tell us, um, in, in your experience, and then talking with all of these elders, you know, what, you know kind of like what is what are the circumstances that kind of set one up for a, a, a bad trip, and, and how does setting play into that? Well, that's a great question, Robert, and a very important one, because whenever we take any kind of substance. We want to know in advance what the negative consequences might be, what the pharmaceutical companies call side effects. <laughs> side effects. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a side effect, Robert, because when you have trouble based on ingesting something, it doesn't necessarily happen on your side. That's a sanitized way that the pharmaceutical companies describe what I call rightfully unwanted complications of medicine, OCM, unwanted complications of medicine. And the public has a right to know what the unwanted complications are before they take anything. And they shouldn't be described as side effects. Because the side effects, I mean, listen to how it sounds. Oh, that's just a side effect. You know, like it happens on your side or it happens next to you. Mm -hmm. No. Some of these are unwanted complications, and they are very powerful, and they are very negative. Now, let's address your question about unwanted complications of psychedelic medicines. What can happen when you take a psychedelic is you can have your in- in, intra within you, your intrapersonal demons can get released. Things that you feel badly that you've done. Things that have ha happened to you. Early childhood traumas, sexual abuse, rapes, physical abuse, psychological abuse, feelings of self-loathing, feelings of regret. All kinds of stuff that we have stuffed in some compartment in the recesses of our consciousness can suddenly be revealed to us. Now, I talked to you earlier in the program about the difference between using these medicines recreationally and using them as medicines. Do not have a guide and you're by yourself. Or worse, you're out in public, and some of these demons reveal themselves, it can be very distressing. Anxiety-producing, really terrifying is not an exaggeration. However, mm -hmm. when the exact same experiences occur, and you have a professional guide, the worst possible experience is the best possible experience. And why is that? Because there is an opportunity with the help of the professional guide 
to heal the trauma, heal the, te the abuse, forgive oneself for that which we did that we regret. Take control of the situation and heal it to such an extent that it no longer is living in the recesses of our consciousness and acting as a, a sword of Damocles that at any moment can reveal itself in private and public and terrify us because in the psychedelic experience with the help of the guide and using these psychedelics as medicines, we can heal and therefore no longer fear that at some point one of these demons is going to jump out and do something to embarrass us or terrify us or something other that is distressing. Yeah, the, the, the idea of having someone there to guide um, one through those traumatic um, experiences is seems to be key. And and when you say guide too, it's you also I think in it what we're talking about that the guide um, is isn't there to direct the the journey, but but in fact um, to allow the individual to kind of follow whatever path and then just be there as support for that journey. But for the most part, the best thing that the guide can do is nothing. However, when some of these demons get released, that's the time when the guide comes into play. The example mm -hmm. being, you're going up and you're taking flying lessons. Would you or I, anyone we know, ever go up in a plane and take a flying lesson alone? How would you be teaching? Who is teaching you? Who would ever mm -hmm. think of going up in a private plane alone <laughs> without having been taught how to do it? Well, that's sort of what you're doing when you take a psychedelic by yourself. You're going into a very powerful journey, and you haven't been taught any skills of how to handle it. It's a very, very questionable endeavor. Very questionable. Now, am I here to tell you that millions of people haven't done it on their own? Of course I won't. I know that they have. Mm -hmm. Plenty of them have come out okay. No question. But your question was, what about the unwanted complications of the medicine? What about these negative stories? What about the, the terrible cases? And we do have them. And it's our responsibility formation as possible. And the story that I'm telling Robert is when you're learning to fly a plane, you want the teacher in the plane with you. And, of course, the teacher can say, now take the controls, just like the guy says, sit down, you take the medicine, and you're on your own, for, but I'm here. However, when you're flying that plane and you run into some trouble or you get scared or there's some turbulence, you're really happy that that other pilot is in the plane to take over and give you a little guidance so that you get stable again. And the same thing is true with these medicines. The guide, for the most part, 
can do very little and does very little. In fact, guiding, from my perspective, is mostly rather boring because there's not much to do. However, when there is something to do, it's a very critical something to do because it's an opportunity to turn something extremely negative and terrifying into something very positive and soothing and healing. Yeah, very much. Um, now I want to talk about a couple of the interviews um, of the, the that you have included in the book. Now, in in one section, therapist, you have your story, um, and and you were interviewed by Charles um, Bush. So tell us uh, first of all who Charles Bush is and, and why you chose to have him interview you about your psychedelic experience. Oh, that's a very nice question, Robert. Thank you. Uh, Charles Bush is going to hear this, and he's going to love your question. Uh, <laughs> Charles Bush, in addition to being a very dear friend of mine, uh, both he and his wife, Sakina, um, is a philosopher, and he is an educator. And uh, he started a special school for children in uh, Taos, New Mexico, and he also started a uh, very highly acclaimed, both of his schools are highly acclaimed, uh, a, another highly acclaimed school in the village of Mendocino in Mendocino County in Northern California. And w we selected him because of his wide, wide education, his deep philosophy, and frankly for his loving gentleness. And so that's why we selected uh, Charles to do that interview about my psychedelic experiences. And okay. as you, as I think you know, but we'll let your listeners know, I qualified to be in the book because I'm 83 years old, so I am an elder. <laughs> uh -huh. And you have experimented as well. So. And I have a lot of experience with psychedelics going back to my first experience in 19... 67, which is over, well over 50 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, what um, one of the a couple of the items that that I pulled from your interview um, um, by Charles, uh, one of them we talked a little bit about the UCM, the unwanted complications of medicine, and and you know, I, it's uh, to me, you know, I, I get. Um, so I wait sometimes internally when I see advertisements of some of these new medications with their, quote, side effects, um, and, you know, it, you know, with the ultimate side effect being death. You know, and, and to me, it, it's, it, makes, it makes absolutely no sense at all to be taking something with an increased possibility of that, you know, as being a result of, of taking the medication. So, um, but, but, um, anyway, that, you know, that, again, that this is just crazy. But there was one line, or a couple lines actually, in your, your section that uh, I, I thought it was the ultimate. <laughs> it was on page 242. And, and it was regarding the, um, some of the knowledge or that you bring back from, you know, a, a psychedelic experience. And, and this one was regarding the meaning of life. And it was that the essential part is that the meaning of life 
is that which we imbue with meaning, period. End of, end of sentence. I thought, well, you know, that's it. The comment about um, the meaning of life, you know, and it is what we give meaning to. Um, and, and to me, that was um, kind of like an ultimate description of one's reason for being, you know, is, is that, that we, you know, whatever we imbue meaning to is what is meaningful. So, I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's one of those cases where if, if one does, you know, has some psychedelic uh, kind of experiences, you know, that the, um, like you had mentioned, that it opens up the individual to recognizing interconnectedness. So, to me, it would seem that that our purpose and the meaning that we give for our purpose is expanded greatly once we recognize our interconnectedness. Yes, yes, because this this condition that we're in, where we're both alone and connected, we all live with, but it's easy to get out of balance and feel more alone and less connected. And unfortunately, Robert, that's one of the things that's happened as a result of the worldwide pandemic. Because with people staying sequestered, and particularly single people sequestered in their own little living space, they've become more disconnected, and they have less a sense of connection with their fellow beings because so many of us hardly saw anybody for periods of time. So many of us have been living what you might call monastically. And as I pointed out, it's even harder, I believe, on single people living alone. And those who are living in groups had an easier time because they had their pods. So if you're living in a house with six people, at least you had five other people to connect with. Mm-hmm. But it has, been, it has been very deleterious. And so, Robert, what the country is, is suffering, and we're getting these reports from all over the country, and I've got to assume it's therefore true for the rest of the world, of a, of a dramatic increase in anxiety and depression. Because what happens when human beings feel disconnected with, from one another, we, we start to feel a sense of loss of meaning, loss of purpose, loss of connection. It's like a boat out in the middle of the ocean that suddenly loses direction. It's one thing if you leave New York to go to London by boat and you know exactly how you're going. It's another thing if halfway across, you lose all your technology, and you have absolutely no way of knowing where you're going. But there you are, mm-hmm. adrift in the middle of the ocean. And that's what we're experiencing as a country and as a world right now. And that's a dangerous situation, not only because of the anxiety and the distress that it causes, Robert, but it's dangerous because it also leaves people prey to those who would come along and say, Follow me. I know the way. I can heal you of all that ails. 
That is a great danger that we must be extremely aware of at all times. One of my yeah. one of my yeah. favorites one of my favorite slogans is from Thomas Jefferson, where he said, "Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty." We must maintain our vigilance. We don't want to lose our liberty. We don't want to lose our democracy and our republic because we've been alienated from ourselves as a result of a pandemic, which has left us anxious and depressed. We need to come together as a people, reach out to our neighbors again, hang out with one another, because you, basically human beings are tribal, very friendly, cooperative animals. Mm -hmm. But we do have a small percentage of us, the social Darwinist leaders, and they would prefer that we all be subjects once again rather than citizens. And we throw off the yoke of being subjects doing our revolution in the late 1700s. And I, for one, do not want to go back to that. Yeah, yeah, me, me neither. Um, well, uh, there's one other individual that I wanted to talk about with a, a topic that uh, she addressed in, in her particular interview. And that's uh, Countess Amanda Fielding. And, you know, you describe very wonderfully the the work that she has done you know to um kind of uh the leading force you know behind uh, you know the resistance to, the international resistance to, to psychedelics but in in her story she talks about um uh, not hiding her use of psychedelics from her children and and you know that basically you know, kind of keeping them in the loop, so to speak, about their experiences. And she indicated when they were growing up that they each had their own, you know. But um, what is your opinion on, you know, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, it's really important to educate our youth um, about, uh, you know, about psychedelics, not to encourage them to use, but from an informational standpoint. So what is your opinion on, you know, educating children, you know, kind of what's, what's maybe the, uh, too early in age or, or what, exactly what nature should our education, um, in what nature should it focus? Well, to begin with, Amanda Fielding is a heroine. Amanda Fielding has used her position as a member of England's aristocracy to push forward the science of psychedelics and to do it in an extremely responsible way. And so she has been an important figure in the worldwide psychedelic renaissance. And she has also used herself, as you can read in my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, as a subject in self-experimentation. I happen to have the good fortune to have met her sons, Cosmo, uh, when he was showing his film, The Sunshine Boys, which is about uh, two other people in the book, uh, uh, Randall and Scully, who were uh, LSD manufacturers in the 60s. Um, children learn from their parents. The question you're asking is, 
at what point do you tell the children which piece of information? That's a good question. And I don't think it's the government or politicians' place to set that standard because different children are open and ready to hear various information at different times in their lives. But one thing we do know is that when parents are secretive about their behavior, it causes difficulty. And when parents are secretive about their behavior, it makes the children even more curious. What is it they're doing behind that door? What is it they've got locked up in that cabinet? What is in that book that I'm not supposed to look at? What is in that drink that I'm not supposed to drink? What is in that pill that I'm not supposed to take? And so the more that you hide things from children, the more their natural curiosity arises and the more they want to know about it, if not jump into it. It is much more effective and safer to educate the children as early as possible and take away this veil of secrecy that promotes their investigation without safety. Bring them to what it is you're doing at the times that are appropriate and let them know what it is you're doing and let them know which of the activities you're doing they are ready for and which they're not. And then be good parents and monitor them. I believe in radical transparency, Robert. I think for the most part, if not always, secrets create problems. Secrets are a way of holding power over other people. I know something that you don't, and I'm going to use it in some way. Well, how about telling everybody everything? I, I like this <laughs> concept that's coming out of technology. It's called open source. You discover something that's going to help a lot of people. Follow Benjamin Franklin, who, when he discovered the lightning, the world, the lightning rod, and saved millions of people's lives and didn't charge anybody anything for it. And when he invented the Franklin stove, he did the same. He gave the world the Franklin stove. And when he invented bifocals, he did the same. He gave the world the bifocals. He was the originator of open source. His motto was, if I can save people's lives and help them, let me set the information free. And I, I, I really champion that. I think that's a, that's a wonderful model that he set for us. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's great. Well, uh, Richard, it's really been great speaking with you. If, if there is anything, maybe any final words you may want to leave our listeners with, maybe something we didn't cover or just some final thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I'm going to end with a wish for the end of the year, or maybe you'll be presenting this in the new year, the wish being When you meet a stranger on the road, be kind to them, for they're going through the same thing that you're going through in this life. That's 
perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I, I think that if we were to um, just recognize uh, that interconnectedness um, and uh, the um, common human experience that we have um, can be challenging, but but um, it's, it's worth um, it's worth living and, and, and going through the experiences and, and helping us. So I, I really want to thank you for your time today, Richard. Thank you very much. It's been fun being with you, Robert. Great. Thank you. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. We've been talking about his new book, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Mind-Altering Substances. Um, great book and, and great stories in there, by the way. Um, we didn't get to talk about Dr. Dina Dell, who was, was a very interesting interview. So pick up the book. Um, you can also go visit his website, which is www.mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. So, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Her Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touched.